Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Value and Arbitrage, Wealth Attraction Research, War, WAR, Value and Arbitrage. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Product Value and Arbitrage, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Dorling Kinsley's publications, The Little Book of Economics and How Money Works, The Facts Visually Explained. First, I'll start with The Little Book of Economics. This one is once again has a highlight from the key thinker Karl Marx, one of the authors of The Communist Revolution, of which I have a copy, and also from and it's called The Value of a Product Comes from the Effort Needed to Make It, The Labor Theory of Value, which sounds a lot like what Adam Smith talks about in Wealth of Nations. And then, of course, the boring for last, lest you fall off at the end of this quick uh, talk and reading here, is from How Money Works, The Facts that you'll Explain, and this section is called Arbitrage. So let's get through this because I have a, a Japanese lesson in 40 minutes. So I'll get done with this. All right. So let's take a look. What do we have? Oh, welcome to the room. You guys are filled up here fast. Hello, Truly Julie, Cecilia Grace, um, Amber Kovic, Marcianne, and David Coloma. Welcome. Whether you're just passing through or you're sitting a spell to have a listen. Okay. So, a little book of economics. The value of a product comes from the effort needed to make it. The labor theory of value. In context, the focus uh, is theories of value. The key thinker, as I said before, is Karl Marx, who lived from 1818 to 1883. Before his time in 1662, English economist William Petty argues that land is a free gift of nature, and so all capital is past labor. That's new to me. That sounds interesting. I like that part. That not that true? That land is a free gift of nature? Until, of course, people put fences around it and then start charging you for all sorts of things that are the produce of the land. And then uh, exploit the labor of humankind to uh, sell it. But that's why I love capitalism. Exploitation as a supervillain. No, I'm just kind of joking. <laughs> 1690, English philosopher John Locke argues that workers deserve the fruits of their labor, their labors. After that time in 1896, Austrian economist Eugen von Bohm Bauwerk publishes Karl Marx and the close of his system summarizing the criticisms of Marx's labor theory of value. 
1942, radical U.S. economist Paul Sweezy publishes The Theory of Capitalist Development, defending Marx's labor theory of value. I wonder why Paul Sweezy was a radical U.S. economist. I'll explore that later. All right, let's take a look here. The importance of labor in determining the value of goods has a history that can be traced back to the ancient Greek philosophers. For about 200 years from the mid-17th century, it dominated economic thought. In its in primitive pre-industrial societies, the role of labor in determining the rate at which one good could be exchanged for another was fairly simple. Yeah, bartering, trading, right? That's fairly simple and straightforward. Hmm. If it took a man a week to make a fishing net, he was unlikely to exchange it for a wooden spoon that had been carved in a morning. However, the issue became much more complicated with the emergence of modern industrial societies in the 18th century. Hmm. All right. The classical societies, uh, the classical economists, oh, there he goes again, Adam Smith. The classical economists, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, had each developed a theory of value connected to labor. But it was the German philosopher Karl Marx who set out the most famous description of the labor theory of value in his magnum opus, Capital. Marx, okay, labor and cost. Marx's idea uh, was that the amount of labor used to produce a good is proportional to its value. The theory is often justified by the following argument. If a haircut involves half an hour of labor at $40 per hour, the haircut has, a, has $20 of value. Now, Coach, that's because it seems like they're going by hourly, right? If it also needs the use of scissors and brushes that cost a total of $60 and lose $1 of their value to wear on each haircut, the total value of the haircut is $21. Of the tools, the scissors themselves cost $20 because they took 45 minutes of labor to forge from a lump of steel, costing $12.50 into the pair of scissors. The same reasoning can be applied to explain why the lump of steel cost $12.50, tracing time and cost for producing steel from iron ore. It is possible to trace the expenditure on the intermediate inputs until we arrive back at the original natural resources, which are free. So all the value has been created by labor. We following that so far? All the value has been created by labor because, of course, um, in the beginning, uh, as we read here, that um, English economist Petty, William Petty, argued that land is a free gift of nature. And so all capital is past labor. Hmm. Okay, so it is possible to trace the expenditure on all the intermediate inputs until we arrive back at the original natural resources, which are free. So all the value has been created by labor. Marx pointed out that it is too difficult to calculate the value of any good in this way. So value should be determined by the congealed lump of labor that the good contains. By the way, congealed is another word for mixed, roughly. 
Okay, so, so value should be determined by the congealed lump of labor that the good contains. He also said that value is determined by the normal amount of labor we expect its production to take. Value is determined by the normal amount of labor we expect its production, its production to take. An inefficient hairdresser may take an hour to cut someone's hair, but the haircut's cost should not then rise by $20. Marx did not deny that supply and demand in the marketplace would influence the value or price of goods in the short run, but said that in the long run, the basic structure and dynamics of the value system must come from labor. Hmm. Interesting, all right. I'm, I'm tracking this a little bit so far. So past labor is what the produce of the land is considered, which, you know, as William Petty argued, that land is a free gift of nature. And let's take a look then at uh, the little section called happiness in work. Hmm. Okay, well, before that, let me take a look at this. Uh, there's a little sidebar with some nice little cute pictures. It says one, it says when the labor theory of value dominated economic thought, it faced, it faced a number of critiques based on paradoxical questions. So I guess here are these questions. If sandcastles are made by labor, why don't they have any value? Sandcastles. I haven't built, made a sandcastle in a long time. Now, I'm, I, now I can understand what these two pictures are. They're, they're basically sandcastles made by buckets. They're the shape of a, an upside-down bucket with a little flag sticking on the top of them. So if sandcastles were made by labor, why don't they have any value? Marx's response was that not everything made by labor has value. Labor can still be wasted on goods no one wants. Hmm. Uh, I wonder what, what kind of goods people don't want sandcastles? Or maybe they don't want to buy sandcastles. I can think of some other things people don't want. I mean, there's a lot of people that might not want roach popsicles. I mean, right? You know, drop a handful of raisiny looking roaches into uh, some popsicle molds, pour some, uh, some coconut water in there and freeze them. Make some uh, coconut roach pops. I know. I'm, I'm saying some, that gross thing on purpose. Um, you don't want it, do you? So I'm trying to put the point forward. But maybe some of you do. Especially if those, there are those lab-grown roaches that they make in some places like in China where they make them so that they're not all gross and you know, filled with disease and stuff because they eat crap from wherever they can find it. Which reminds me of another thing. I did, I worked on this, uh, well, I went to a play called Bitch um, in California when Carrie Singman, who was once the lead guitar player for a group called The Chimps, and he was a fellow, he's a friend and fellow personal trainer at Meridian's Bodies in Motion in Encino. Um, and, and oh, by the way, The Chimps, they had a couple of their songs in the TV show uh, Sons of Anarchy. That's one of their claims to fame besides other things like playing at Ozfest and whatnot. But um, he invited me to a play by one of his, his fitness training clients called Bitch. And one of the things in the story Bitch was about um, somebody was getting poisoned by tetrodotoxin, which you can get from the puffer fish, or also known as the uh, Takifugu rubripes, or the fugu fish. And uh, there was this um, 
this uh, Japanese scientist, I don't recall his name at the moment, but I do have an article on uh, eym.hypnoathletics.com, eym, of course, being exercise in your mind. Uh, and uh, it, it, explain, it gives that, uh, oh, I think his name is Tomoro Naguchi, something like that. Um, but he, uh, he raised toxin-free fugu fish because he found that um, when you, the, that the fugu fish get their poison from eating a, a certain bottom-feeding mollusk that ingests something called vibrio. And the vibrio in the system then, through different bio, biochemical changes, turns into the tetrodotoxin. So he was able to raise fish without poison in the lab and um, was able to uh, make fish without poison. Although that was, it seems to be, it was told me that's the whole fun of eating fugu fish is that, uh, you know, you may or may not die from eating them. Sounds like a fun, that's why people, and they have special chefs who are licensed or certified to um, prepare the fish in a certain way that's supposed to be safe, but people still die from eating it in Japan. But that's the whole thrill of it. Japanese people are very interesting. I mean, one of the first books I, ha I ever bought on haiku was called Japanese Death Poems, in which the Japanese would write haiku upon their deathbed when they knew they were going to die. And then there's also, some of you have heard of this forest in Japan where people just go to die. A very suicidal culture in so many ways for honor that actually has a couple of um, words for, for uh, suicide, ritual suicide that the, the samurai would do, uh, seppuku, where they would cut their bellies open and spill their intestines out. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's graphic. And then also harikari, right? And then also uh, kamikaze. So there's so many words for killing yourself in that language. Um, yeah, and that's the Japanese language lesson I'm going to have today. I will be uh, living in Asia half, six months out of the year. Oh, it's, everything's already set in stone for that to happen. So, uh, of course, you know, plans and life goes up and down, but we'll see how that happens. Let's get back onto the, uh, um, the value of a product comes from the effort needed to make it. And uh, the point that I was making about certain things that you don't want, like Mark said that if sandcastles, well, the question was if sandcastles are made by labor, why don't they have any value? And Mark's response was that not everything made by labor has value. Labor can still be wasted on goods no one wants, and no one wants roach popsicles for the most part. Um, that led me to that whole poo poo fish thing. So the second question is how can an artistic masterpiece be valued from the amount of labor hours used to make it? The defense to this critique is that a great work of art is an exception to the rule because it is unique. Therefore, there is no average quantity of labor from which to derive price. Huh. That makes sense, right? It's, it's uh, subjective art, the value of it. Well, I mean, if we really, if we want to be real, uh, the value of everything is subjective for the most part, right? We have to agree on it. And the final question is, how do vintage wine stored for 10 years increase in value without any additional labor input. The defense here is that an additional cost does accrue to labor, that of waiting for the wine to mature. Hmm. All right. Uh, those are interesting examples, the labor theory of value. Okay, so this final piece here in the little book of economics is called Happiness in Work. Karl Marx argued that people are driven by a desire to be connected to other humans, and this is what makes us happy. You know, that goes right along with uh, 
what I was reading on the topic of freedom from the little, from the, uh, the psychology of money. And that's got to be one of my favorite parts of the book um, because of, you know, it says that uh, the highest form of wealth is the, is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. The ability to do what you want, when you want, and here's the key, with who you want, for as long as you want, is priceless. Right? That is priceless. It's priceless to me. It's a wonderful experience of certain kinds of freedom that you can have right now with or without being monetarily, financially wealthy. But let's continue here. So he says that um, Karl Marx argued that people are driven by a desire to be connected to other humans. And this is what makes us happy. You know, again, I got I to gotta read again from the, the little book of psychology. It really had me... Uh, you know, a little emotional earlier when I was when I was re reading this, and um, he was, you know, um, talking about uh, when uh, children, right, and what they actually want um, is not having anything to do with, you know, um, you know, they they don't care about what a parent's money can buy, right. They care about the time that they get to spend with their parents, right? They care about the time that they get to spend with their family, not what the money can buy. So um, that, uh, you know what, I don't, how, how do I forget where that is in the book already? You know what, I just forget that now. I guess I'm not going to read that again. All right, let me continue with what Karl Marx is talking about here. Okay, so. Karl Marx argued that people are driven by a desire to be connected to other humans, and this is what makes us happy. We show this desire through work. When a person makes something, that product represents his or her personality. But when someone else buys that item, the maker is happy because not only has he or she satisfied the need of another person, but the buyer has also confirmed the goodness of the personality of the producer. Hmm, Karl Marx, how dare you? What, what is he gonna, what are they saying next? This is blasphemy. It says, capitalism destroys this essence of humanity, Marx claimed, because it alienates the workers from what they produce. People no longer control their output. They are merely hired to produce a product in which they have had little creative input and are unlikely to consume or even trade. Okay, I can get that. If they're not directly making it, okay? So, it alienates the workers from what they produce. People no longer control their output. They are merely hired to produce a product which they have had little creative input and are unlikely to consume or even trade. The cooperative nature of society is lost because people are isolated in the competition for jobs. Marx argued that it is this separation from our work that makes us unhappy. It's, it's still always amazing me how co amazes me how coincidental that I'm just randomly reading these things at a certain time, whenever I have time to do it, and they match up with other things that I've just spoken about, and that's just about work and happiness and freedom and all that. So I'm gonna have to explore and, and cross-reference those things later. So that's the end of the little book of economics. The value of a product comes from the effort needed to make it. Karl Marx does make some good points. In the next reading from this book, it will be called Prices Come from Supply and Demand. 
and uh, but that's it right now for the little book of economics. Let's see, it's eight minutes after five. I got 22 minutes before my Japanese lesson. Hajime mashite. All right. Arbitrage. This is how many works. Uh, the facts. The facts visually explained. All right. Here we go. Arbitrage. When there are price differences between two similar assets being traded on different exchanges across the world, traders may seek to take advantage, advantage of the discrepancy in order to make a profit. This practice is known as arbitrage. Yeah, I mean, some of these practices in capitalism are really uh, shady. I mean, that, I mean, just even, I'm glad these books are so straightforward, though they're not mincing any words or hiding anything because this is exactly what it is when there are price differences between two similar assets being traded on different exchanges across the world traders may seek to take advantage of the discrepancy in order to make a profit practices known as arbitrage all right let's look at transatlantic trades when a company is listed on both the uk and us exchanges arbitrage may be possible for example if a trader can buy shares in company a on the U.S. exchange for $2.99 each and sell them on the U.K. exchange for $2.30. Okay, so here we go. I got I to gotta use the currency. So if a trader can buy shares in company A on the U.S. exchange for $2.99 each and then sell them on the U.K. exchange for £2.30 each, I think that's what it is, pence, I don't know, right, which is equal to $3.01, the trader will make a profit of $0.02 cents per share. In practice, arbitrage works by exploiting small price differences such as these at high volumes. Right? High volumes means they're, they're trading a lot of them at once, so not just um, one item, but maybe you know, 1,000 or 1 million of those items to make uh, use of those price differences. All right? And continuing, uh, at high volumes. Right? So in practice, arbitrage works by exploiting small price differences such as these at high volumes, using computer programs to trade almost instantaneously. These trades take place so quickly that the biggest profits are made by the organizations with the fastest computers. Hmm. All right, let's look at high-frequency traders. Computing power enables HFT, high-frequency traders, to search the markets for tiny anomalies to exploit. A computer program automatically evaluates and carries out a large number of trades at high speeds, faster than any person could do. It is possible to make a lot of money from very small price differences in this way. And again, I'll have to reinforce that it's with high volumes. Let's take a look. We've got uh, some visual expl explanations here. We show New York Stock Exchange, Company A, um, has a stock buy share at US price to $2.99. The reading that I just did earlier. And on the London Stock Exchange, they uh, sell it um, for, so UK price, sell share at UK price, so buy share at UK price, at US price in dollars, and sell share at UK price to make a small profit. So in this case, um, what we have here, two ninety nine, $2.99, and, uh, and then selling it for three pounds, I mean, two pounds, 30 pence, and uh, in this case, they sell the share at UK price to make a small profit. In this case, 0 0.023 per share. That's like just a little bit more than two cents exchanged. 
And so the profit is two cents per share. <clears throat> and the exchange rate can change. Let's see how it works. And then we're going to go into something exciting, how arbitrage goes wrong. All right. When keeping it real goes wrong. All right, so how it works. Arbitrage is the practice of buying a tradable asset in one market and almost simultaneously selling it at a higher price in a different market. You know, this is the same thing over and over again. Uh, um, buy low, sell high. It's the same process in almost anything if you can find a way to do that. All right, so arbitrage is the practice of buying a tradable asset in one market and almost simultaneously selling it at a higher price in a different market. Also, that applies to when you can sell your labor or your services, right? Your deliverable for a higher price than it costs you to uh, think up, decide on, or produce your own deliverable product or service. Continuing, conversely, it is also the practice of selling an asset in one market and buying it for a cheaper price in another, right? Arbitrage, as currently practiced in stock and bond markets, is only possible due to the computing power now available. So large volumes of transactions can exploit small differences in prices within milliseconds. Hmm. Arbitrage, as currently practiced in stock and bond markets, is only possible due to the computing power now available. Right. All right. When arbitrage goes wrong, in 1998, hedge fund long-term capital management LTCM lost get this 4.6 billion dollars as a result of arbitrage trades in bonds that went wrong the price difference between bonds being traded was relatively small so in order to make a profit long-term or long-term capital management had to carry out large volumes of trades these trades were also highly leveraged using billions of dollars borrowed from other financial companies this high leverage and the 1998 Russian financial crisis prompted investors to move their capital to less risky investments. LTCM, remember long-term capital management, sustained huge losses and was in danger of defaulting on its loans. The U.S. government had to intervene in order to prevent a collapse of the debt markets and damage to the global economy. Wow. All right. Well, let's take a look here at the end of this and closing out. So I have uh, 15 minutes to get ready for my Japanese lesson and listen to my recordings to, pre to pretend like I've been practicing for the last five days. Uh, let's see. 60% of U.S. equity trading was estimated to be high frequency trading at its height in 2009. 60% of U.S. equity trading was estimated to be high-frequency trading at its height in 2009. That's that high frequency, so it was being done a lot and probably at those high volumes. Well, that's it. That's all I got, and I'm glad. That was only 30 minutes. Or, well, my call-in saying 27 minutes, so this is good. Coming up next in the next uh, Wealth Attraction Research, if I don't have time to get to that Part two of Wealth of Nations because it is so long, part two in, in book two. That's why I haven't read it yet, just because of time constraints. Uh, the next one in How Money Works is manipulating the stock market. Stock market manipulation can take many forms, such as artificially fixing prices higher or lower with the aim of interfering with the market for personal gain.
Slimy bastards. All right. Well, that's it for now. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Value and Arbitrage, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., Spreaker Social Podcasting, and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Uniquilibrium. Thanks for stopping by or sitting a spell on uh, Wisdom, Zoe, Janelle, Marcianne, Chocolate Yoda, Cecilia Grace, Brother Chuck, and Wandering Fool. Look at those three favorites in a row right there. Cecilia Grace, Brother Chuck, Wandering Fool, Dow with the Dashes, Sebastian, uh, Jean, Undefined, Julie Julie, Amber Cobit, and David Coroma. Stay well.